Uh, just a reminder, I mentioned this during the announcements, but uh, Esther and Joel Faulkner are planning to be here uh, again in, in two weeks. I forget if they're planning to get into town on Friday, uh, Friday, Saturday, and then they'll be here with us on Sunday morning. So again, if anybody's able to host them, uh, please let me know. Um, but it'll be good to have them with us. It's always a great joy to have missionaries visit. Speaking of missionaries, I was texting Don Stout, who's a missionary we support in France this morning, and he said to, to all the church, he said hi. So Don and his wife and their family say hi from France. Uh, I also wanted to read this note. We got this in the mail this week. We had taken a special offering for a lady named Jane, who Mark Kugler knows through Empty Tomb, and she sent a thank you note. We had raised enough money to basically cover two months of her rent. She was three months behind. She, she had some help for the, for the third month. And it was a, a really short note, but it, it, it hit me. Uh, she said, I'm writing to thank you for helping me. Your gift saved me from becoming homeless. I can't believe this is real. May God bless you, you wonderful people. And I'll put this note in the back. Again, it was short, but it just was so striking to me. And I'm sure it was true that your gift saved me from becoming homeless. And so for everybody who, who donated, uh, it, it means a lot to Jane. And um, so just thank you. And it's such a great honor that we could be used to be a blessing. Uh, Galatians chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning. John mentioned this in announcements. We'll be out of town next week. Steve's going to be preaching for me. And um, appreciate prayers for safe travels and excited to, to hear Steve's message. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, than an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this beautiful sunny day, Lord, the opportunity we once again have to worship your great name, to praise you, to remember your gospel, to be pointed to truth, and we pray for our time as we study in your word. Lord, we want to pray for Ron Yergler as he was taken to the hospital this morning. Lord, we want to pray for a speedy recovery. Lord, we want to pray for good reports from the doctors. We want to pray for his health. Lord, we, we pray for the nations of Turkey and Syria and the horrible earthquake, thousands of lives lost last week. Lord, we pray for these nations. We pray for rescue and recovery efforts. Lord, it's, it's a tragic thing to see. 
And Lord, we want to continue to pray for Jane. Lord, again, we're, we're so thankful that we were able to help her get on her feet. And Lord, we just continue to pray for her and lift her up. People are struggling right now. Lord, these are tough times. And Lord, I pray that this church continue to be used to be light and to be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. The gospel is a message which is simple enough that a child can understand it, and so simple that adults often misunderstand it. All people are invited to the cross of Christ, are invited to the throne of grace, are invited to receive the forgiveness and redemption that Jesus offers by faith. The Old Testament is the story of God's unfolding plan of redemption for the world as it points to the Savior of the world. And the Old Testament largely focuses on a people of God, the Israelites. The New Testament has a broader focus than just Israel in pointing to the gospel that has a worldwide focus. And so the focus in the New Testament isn't solely on the Israelites, but we see this distinction between two groups of people, the Jewish or Israelite people and the Gentiles. As I pointed out before, Gentile is basically a catch-all term for a non-Jewish person, and that's probably something that applies to everyone in this room. The New Testament also will sometimes use the word Greeks to refer to Gentiles. That's basically just shorthand for the non-Jewish world. Through the gospel, we see that both groups are able to receive salvation and grace. And I point this out because it's relevant to our passage today. This passage is complicated. Maybe the most difficult in the entire book of Galatians. Without question, the most difficult that we've covered this far in our study of Galatians. And I think part of the reason why it's a difficult section is that there are places in this passage where Paul is speaking to Jewish converts, and there's other places where he's speaking more to both Jewish and Gentile converts. Because people of both of those backgrounds had come to faith in the gospel in the churches in Galatia. But new believers from both backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, were also at risk. As I've said numerous times in this study, part of the reason why Paul was writing the book of Galatians was that there were false teachers in the Galatian churches who were trying to get the new Galatian Christians to continue adding aspects of the Old Testament law onto the gospel. And the problem is that adding law onto gospel becomes a different gospel, which is to say, no longer is that the gospel. As Paul had said at the beginning of this letter, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Our main point in our passage today is that all are invited to be saved by grace, and it is grace alone which saves. And we'll be looking at this passage in three parts. Life before Christ, life in Christ, and remaining in Christ. 
And with that, we come to our passage this morning. First part, life before Christ. Paul begins this section with an illustration. In the beginning of our time, just a moment ago, I mentioned people coming to the gospel from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. This first couple of verses are speaking more specifically to people who came from a Jewish background. Verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Paul depicts the heir of a wealthy family. He has a vast inheritance coming to him. But in the ancient world, Paul is saying that before he received it, he's no better off than a slave. In other words, before receiving the inheritance, you're still broke. You just have the future promise of being wealthy. And he's comparing the heir to the Jewish people who had the promises that the Lord had made to Abraham. They had the great riches and blessings of God's promises, but they were not fully realized until Christ had come. Verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. When Paul's talking about guardians and managers, I take that to refer to the law of the Old Testament. Before Christ came, God's people were under the law as a guardian. It's reminiscent of language Paul had used in chapter 3 when talking about the law. Chapter 3, verse 24. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, I had talked about how wealthy Greco-Roman families would sometimes entrust their children to a chaperone who would be their teacher and protector by modern standards, almost like a professional life coach for their kids. Verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, Paul says, we. I maintain that verses 1 and 2, he's looking at the situation from a Jewish Christian perspective. Verse 3, I would argue Paul is including Gentiles into the conversation when he says we. In a sense, Paul is restarting his metaphor. In verses 1 and 2, the point is that the Jewish people were heirs of a great inheritance. Verse 3 is saying that before the gospel, when it comes to spiritual maturity, all people, Jew and Gentile alike, were like children. And Paul says that they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And like I said, this is a difficult verse as far as just understanding what he's saying, what he means. What are the elementary principles of the world? And the key word really is the word elementary. Now, when we say the word elementary in English, we're most likely referring to elementary school. And some think that that's what Paul means here when he says the elementary principles of the world. Kind of like learning the ABCs of their worldview. I don't think that's what he's saying, though. I take elementary from the Greek that he's actually referring to the elements themselves. If you've ever taken a chemistry class at any level, you've seen the periodic table of elements. In the Greco-Roman world, they didn't think of the elements as broadly as we do. 
In their thought, the elements were the earth, air, water, and fire. And in the Greco-Roman world, these were not only elemental to the natural world, but these were the things which many people worshipped as gods in their own right. Earth, wind, fire, water. In pagan religion, they have a god of the earth. They have a god of water, of the seas. They have a sky god, and they have a god of fire. Both Jewish and Gentile converts had been enslaved in their former lives. And so for the Gentile, that's what Paul means when he says that they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And for the Jewish convert, they had their own slavery, but under the law. That's not to say that the law was bad, but trying to earn righteousness through the law was bad because it made someone a slave to trying to earn God and imprison them by their own sin and failures to abide by the law. Chapter 3, verse 22, it said, The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All are invited to be saved by grace, and it is grace alone which saves. We come to our second point, life in Christ, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now the first three verses of this passage are not the most hopeful, but verse four changes on a dramatic note. But you were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, and the fullness of time points to God's divine plan and sovereignty. There was nothing haphazard about the incarnation of Christ. God was working his plan for salvation through centuries, through different places, continuing to advance his plan through different people, different nations, throughout the Old Testament, constantly pointing forward to a coming Savior. And when the fullness of time had come, Christ came into the world. Quoting John Stott, he says, It was the time when the law of Moses had done its work of preparing men for Christ, holding them under its tutelage and its prison, so that, they no long, so that they longed ardently for the freedom with which Christ could make them free. End quote. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Now, there's so much to that phrase. We are reminded that Jesus was sent. He didn't come from nowhere for no reason. He's the Son of God, which is referring to the divinity of Christ. The fact that he was born of woman is reminding us of the humanity of Christ. Jesus is both fully man and fully God. It's necessary. It's because he is fully man that he is like us in our humanity. It's because he is fully God that he is worthy to reconcile us to the Father. Even though Jesus is fully God, in his humanity, he was born under the law. He was born to a Jewish mother in a Jewish community and perfectly followed all the aspects of the Old Testament law. First part of verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. 
So he was born under the law and followed the law to redeem us. The people who could not, we as human beings, as fallen humanity, could not follow it. God's standard is perfection. And we cannot attain that on our own. But Jesus did. And the gospel is Jesus imputing his perfection to us as if it were our own. Because he's good. And because he's loving. And because he's gracious. The unrighteous can be declared righteous through faith in the Son of God who lived a righteous life. But as we talked about last week, he also grants us sonship. Second part of verse 5. So that we might receive adoption as sons. This idea of adoption as a son of God is not found in the Old Testament. In that we see that the blessings Christ brings, the grace he gives, the relationship with God that he gives us so far exceeds what people could even imagine under the law. The law brought slavery and toil as people tried to earn God on their own. Jesus invites you with open arms to join him in fellowship, to be adopted as a child of God. You can't earn your way to being adopted. It is a gracious gift from a loving parent. But that's what we see through the gospel. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are sons. Paul is stating that as a fact because that's the status we enjoy in Christ. That in Jesus, because of the gospel, there's no wondering if we're accepted or loved by God. And as a result of this adoption and sonship is that God gives us his spirit. In these three verses, we see all three persons of the Trinity at work. God sends the Son. Jesus follows the law so that we can be redeemed and adopted as sons. And the Spirit indwells us. The passage says that the Spirit is in our hearts. And it is a change of heart. It is a rebirth to have faith in Christ because we're given the Spirit of Christ. When the text says that the Spirit cries, Abba, Father, Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. Aramaic is the language which Jesus spoke. That word Abba is actually used three times in the New Testament. And the point here is that the Spirit invites us into intimate fellowship with the Lord. It's not something you can earn or deserve or give yourself. It is purely the result of a good and gracious God. The same Spirit who was at work in creation, the same Spirit who indwelled Jesus during his ministry, is given to every believer in the gospel. Verse 7 is the result of what Paul has been saying. So that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We have redemption through Christ, we have adoption as sons through Christ, and we have an inheritance through Christ. In the Old Testament, the inheritance would have been the promises which the Lord had made to Abraham. And that's what Paul means here, that through Christ, we are heirs to those promises. The Lord made the promises to Abraham, but they're fulfilled through Christ, the ultimate offspring of Abraham. We have a good God. 
And again, so many want to reject the gospel, reject the idea of grace and try to earn it. It's an offense to God. You can't earn what's freely given. When we try to earn God, we lose sight of the wonderful grace that he offers where fallen people can find belonging as we're adopted into the family of God. Where we can find grace as we're forgiven through Christ. And where we can receive blessings as we enjoy the inheritance as heirs of God's promises. It's a gift of God, not an achievement of mankind. We come to our third point, remaining in Christ. We've looked at life before Christ, which was the state of humanity apart from Jesus. We've looked at the great blessings of life in Christ, but we can be fickle. And Paul was concerned for the Galatian churches as people had confused and led the members of the churches astray with a message that was not the gospel. But that risk was not unique to their situation. It's a danger that we can all face, that if we aren't being taught truth, if the gospel is not being preached, then we will always be susceptible to being led astray. Verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So he takes us back to a snapshot of life before Christ. And I'd argue this is the state of all mankind apart from Christ. Paul says, enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. False gods. For the Gentiles, as I said earlier, many came from paganism. Backgrounds where they were literally believing in false gods and false idols. For the Jewish converts, they had the law, but the problem in that was that there was the false god of self and feeling like they were the ones in control of their own salvation based on their own goodness. Our world has lots of false gods, money, success, freedom, even our hobbies. None of those things are bad. But as John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. We can take things that are good and make them our masters. The elemental principles of the world, earth, sky, wind and water, and fire, those things are good, but they make bad gods. We need those things, but people turn them into things to worship. I was going through a book a couple weeks ago by Andrew Wilson called I think it's called God in All Things, and he talked about how people in other cultures worship the sun. He's talking about how to him, if he didn't know Christ, he probably would understand where they're coming from because it's what gives us light. It's what helps things grow. We would die without it. People looked at the things that were essential and then worshiped them as if they were God's. Again, these things that are good and important, but that are not almighty. And if you're not worshiping Christ, you will ultimately look for something or someone other than Christ for your sense of security, for your sense of belonging, for your sense of hope. And whatever that thing is will become your God. And as I said, that's the state of all mankind apart from Christ. And so in verse 8, Paul is saying that's where they were. In verse 9, he's concerned 
that people are falling back into that old way of life. People who are in the church, who have had the gospel preached, who are being led astray. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Let us not fall back into our old habits, our old idols. Paul once again uses language of the elementary principles of the world. He calls them weak and worthless because in terms of saving you, they're powerless. Specific to the Galatian church, the risk of this was people trying to impose the Old Testament law onto the gospel. Earlier in this letter, Paul had also talked about them imposing things like dietary restrictions, trying to impose circumcision. In this passage, he gives the example of false teachers who were still trying to impose the Old Testament calendar on new believers. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And really what Paul is talking about, the whole Old Testament calendar was shaped by its various festivals and holy days, trying to impose those things on new believers in the gospel. Again, the point is not that those things are bad, but they're fulfilled and accomplished and achieved through Christ and no longer need to be celebrated. And at the end of this passage, in verse 11, we see Paul's total frustration, where he says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Perhaps a bit hyperbolic, because obviously it was not in vain that he shared the gospel, but we see throughout this letter, Paul's heart is broken for these churches who have been led astray by a false gospel. We should be rejoicing in the truth of the gospel, not resorting to law and trying to make our relationship with God about our own goodness, because we are not our own saviors. And when we live like we are, there are really two places that's coming from. Either it's a person who never believed the gospel in the first place, maybe they made a false conversion, but then it's a person who still does not know Christ. But for the other person who has really believed in the gospel, who is a true Christian, to then resort back to works, you miss out. You miss out on a fuller relationship with God. You miss out on more fully worshiping God. You miss out on beginning to truly appreciate the greatness of God's grace. The gospel is a message which is simple enough that a child can understand it, yet so simple that adults so often misunderstand it. I close with two thoughts from this passage, and at heart they're related. The first is a drum I've been beating which is that we cannot earn salvation. We cannot work for God's love. This passage is another one where we see this point stressed. It's like it's our default setting as human beings to always want to resort back to works, trying to earn, trying to be good enough. Reflecting on that this morning, I had this thought that perhaps part of the reason why we do that with God is because we so often have to do that with each other. Even people in our lives who are close to us, maybe a parent, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe somebody you're really close to, 
where you still feel like you have to earn their love, where you still feel like their love is conditional. The people who should most love you unconditionally. And I'm sure to varying degrees for all of us, that's probably more or less true for some than others. But that where we've had people where we have to constantly be in this rat race of trying to earn their love and approval. And so perhaps it shouldn't be so surprising that we feel like we have to do that with God as well. But God loves us with a perfect love. And we have a perfect Savior. The other thought on this passage is pointing to Jewish and Gentile people coming to faith. This passage is a reminder that all people are invited to receive grace. Without Christ, we're just as lost as an unbelieving neighbor or family member or friend or coworker. But instead, let us remember that the same grace that saved us can save them too. The life we've found in Christ, they can know too. The cross is where life is found. Let us not keep it a secret, but let us share it with others. Let us not be ashamed of the truth, but willing to share. Because we have a whole world out there who needs to hear the message of the love and grace that are found in Jesus. In a moment, we're going to take communion. Luke chapter 24 gives one of three gospel accounts of Jesus instituting communion at the Last Supper. Luke 24, beginning in verse 14, says, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. And at this time, if the deacons who are serving communion today would please come forward. Communion points to the work of Christ, his body broken for sins, his blood shed for sins. We partake in communion not because it's saving us, but to remember the Lord who brings salvation. But as Jesus said when he instituted communion, it is also given as a sign of a new covenant. Throughout this passage, I talked about people trying to impose the Old Testament law onto the gospel, trying to impose the Old Covenant onto the New Covenant. When we take communion, let us remember that we have a Savior who brings a new covenant, who brings grace, who brings forgiveness. When we do communion at this church, we do open communion, as always, which means that it's open to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And it is an opportunity to remember the gospel in a tangible way, to remember the body and blood of Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus invites us to his table. Lord, he told us to do this in remembrance of him.
to remember the greatness of the gospel. Lord, from these ordinary elements, bread and the cup, that we are pointed in a tangible way to the truth of the gospel. Lord, as we take this, may we remember that we have a good Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.